we're going to have a little different kind of a shiur today. I thought that this week, instead of continuing on to chapter 8, I want to talk about what happened in chapter 7, the chapter we finished last week, where David is given the prophecy that he will be the monarch and his descendants will forever sit on the throne, never to be removed. And I wanted to dedicate a shiur to that whole idea. What's the underlying rationale behind this? Why did Hashem set down that all future monarchs must descend from King David? I'm not saying King David doesn't deserve it. I'm not questioning his worthiness, God forbid. It's not personal. What I'm referring to is the concept of it. The concept of Hashem selecting one individual, as great as that individual may be, and decreeing that his seed, until the end of time, they will be the ones to hold the throne. Why should it go by heredity? Why, why does Hashem want it that way? What happens if one of these sons proves to be wicked? What if there's a more deserving person in a particular generation? Isn't it kind of a gamble to determine that this particular man's sons, until the end of time, they will be the kings of Israel? And the fact is, we had really some awful kings in Judea. We had Achaz and we had Manasseh. These were evil kings. You had other kings that were, you know, mediocre. And then you had the very, very righteous kings in the Machut Yehuda. But what's the logic in it? Why not, again, take the best guy of that generation, let the elders, the skenim of each generation choose the most worthy candidate. I'm not saying to have you know, democratic elections every four years. I'm not saying that. But the question is, why should the monarchy be dependent on heredity? Well, there are practical reasons for it. You can say that a monarchy, it offers stability and continuity and certain amount of predictability. You don't have to have these power struggles all the time. So there are practical reasons. Inheriting the throne within the same family, it provides, again, a sense of predictability and it preserves the, the order. And you can avoid the, the frequent struggles and the transitions and the conflicts that could potentially destabilize the kingdom. For instance, if you compare the kingdom of Judea to the kingdom of the 10 tribes, to the kingdom of Israel, the Sharon, one of the reasons that the kingdom of Judea was a lot more stable and had a lot less strife than the kingdom of Israel is because the kings of Judea, first of all, they were better kings, no doubt about that. But to our point, there was a stability in Judea because everybody knew that the next king, he had to be the son of the previous king. They had to be from the Davidic line. While over in Israel, in the 10 tribes, they didn't have a tradition like that. So you have all these candidates for the kings killing each other. They're duking it out every generation, wiping each other out. Basha's wiping out Yerovam. Somebody else is wiping out Basha. It was a big mess over there. So there are practical reasons to it. But I'd like to share something, I think, very insightful that I learned from Rabbi Benyamin Zefkahana on this topic, which may give us a deeper reason why we go by heredity. When did Rabbi Benyamin Kahana speak about this? Well, after the murder of Rabbi Meir Kahana in 1990, Benyamin Kahana, he took over the mantle of leadership of the movement. Benyamin Kahana was, of course, the son of Rabbi Meir Kahana. And there was a lot of criticism and complaints from the people in the movement. After all, Benyamin Kahana was only 24 years old at the time. He was quiet, didn't seem like a natural-born leader. He hadn't been in any kind of activist leadership role. He was yeshiva guy. 
he established his father's yeshiva and he quietly learned and taught. So he was obviously ideologically sound more than anybody else, but didn't seem ready to be thrust into a leadership role. Certainly there were more seemingly worthier candidates floating around, people who had been in the movement for a long time, talented and dedicated, knew how to organize things. Maybe they should take over the movement. Now, believe me, Binyam Kahana was the last person who wanted to take over the movement. He was naturally shy and soft-spoken, but despite his inclination to avoid the spotlight, he understood that he had to step up. And like I said, people in the movement, people who donated money in Chutzlaretz, who, who were involved but really didn't know him, they didn't understand it. And many questioned it because there was just jealousy and smallness and out of a pettiness, they knocked us for placing Binyamin Kahana as our leader. And there was even a split in the movement, which a lot of it was because of that. You had now Kach, you had Kanachai, Binyamin Kahana was Kanachai, and the existing establishment was called Kach. We had a split over it. And I have to mention here, you know, parenthetically, that Binyamin Kahana proved to be a tremendous leader. He quickly broke his midot of natural shyness and gave rallies and even forced himself to speak in English when he traveled to the United States. Anyway, in response to those who opposed Binyamin Kahana's leadership, he wrote a very important article. And what he wrote in response to his detractors, I want to bring it here. I don't have the article, but I remember the gist of it. And he explained the reasoning why he should be the one to lead the movement. And again, this was a person who not only shunned the spotlight, he fled from it. But again, he realized that he had to get out of his comfort zone here. Anyway, he said that when people see the sun, it reminds them of the father. The sun reminds the people of the father. Maybe that's a primitive kind of feeling, but seeing the flesh and blood of the father, his descendant, his son especially, that has impact because it really is the physical continuation. You can call it what you want. It's an instinctive or visceral feeling, an intuitive response that's ingrained in human emotions. And so the logic is like this. Somebody like Rabbi America Han is going to come around in a hundred generations. Somebody like that doesn't come along every day. And so when he's gone, you can't go around looking for new faces, for new stars. You take somebody who reminds you of the rabbi, and that's the son. You look at the son, you're reminded of the father. And that's the deeper reason why the monarch descends from David HaMelech. Because someone like David HaMelech emerges once in a lifetime. And by having his descendants succeed him on the throne, the people see the son. And they're reminded of, yeah, David HaMelech. Even if they see his great, 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 great grandson, okay? doesn't matter. Just to know that he's a descendant from King David, from his flesh and blood, that's powerful. So no, we do not pick a new superstar candidate every generation to replace the old leader. Instead, we have a passing down from father to son, a Yerusha type of thing, from the line of David. And it's interesting that if you look at the book of Kings, you'll see that each king is evaluated in relationship to his father, David. Each king of Judea is described as either going in the ways of his father, David, or not going in the ways of David Melech. But it's always in relationship to King David because he's the progenitor of the monarchy. He's the standard. You want to keep his name in it. 
And you have a similar thing when it came to choosing the successor to Moses, Moshe Rabbeinu. There were plenty of worthy candidates out there, maybe greater than Joshua. He had Kalev, he had Pinchas. Now, Kalev, in some respects, was greater than Joshua. We see that in the sin of the spies. It was Kalev and not Joshua who had the courage to speak out against the spies. And Kalev, he gets the accolades for his role in fighting the spies' evil counsel, not Joshua. It's Kalev that gets the special bracha. He gets Hebron for his role in that whole episode. And if you go to the book of Joshua, we see that Kalev, he's still as strong as ever. He's telling Joshua, I'm as strong as I was when I went on that mission. And in the meantime, while Kalev is strong as ever, Joshua is getting weary and old. So Kalev is quite the superstar. Yet, it's Joshua who was chosen. Why? Because he was Evid Moshe. His whole identity was Evid Moshe. He's Moshe's servant. Yoshua Evid Moshe, that's how he's defined. He, out of all the Talmudim of Moshe Rabbeinu, or Klal Yisrael, he was the most identified with Moshe Rabbeinu. And of course, Moshe Rabbeinu, he's a once-in-a-lifetime leader. So you choose somebody who most reminds us of Moshe. And that's Yoshua. Kalev may have been greater, but he's something else. He's his own thing, right? He's his own thing. He's his own category of greatness. Joshua's inyan, as they say, his inyan is that he is Evan Moshe. So in short, it's true that the son won't necessarily be the most worthy guy of that generation. He may be just mediocre. But the symbolic representation is important. The monarch and their family, they serve as a symbol of the nation and the kingdom too. We see the son of David Amelech, and that makes us remember David Amelech. We don't want to forget him. The hereditary system allows for a continuous line of symbolic representation connecting the present ruler to their ancestors and to David Amelech and to the history of the nation. So we want to keep connecting to King David and we don't want to start all over again each time with somebody else. That's the logic in it. By continuing with the line of David, we preserve his values and we perpetuate his legacy and his principles. Okay, so next week we're going to go back to the standard shiur. Going to jump into chapter 8. There'll probably be no music this time. And chapter 8's all about the wars of David. And before signing off, we began a campaign to spread these classes, to get them out far and wide. And one of the reasons I started doing this podcast in the first place is there really is a vacuum in the English-speaking world when it comes to learning Bible. Most of the time, if you want to hear a Bible class and you Google Bible classes, you're probably going to get a Christian Bible class, a Christian commentary. And that's a problem. I mean, what's going on here? The Jews wrote the book and the Christians are reading it. So I thought it was important that we learn the Bible with authentic Jewish sources, with the authentic Jewish commentaries. And it's unfortunate that even in yeshivas, where they learn Torah all day, they sit and they learn Gomorrah, 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 nine hours a day, and they barely touch the Tanakh. And this is a terrible distortion, a product of a 2,000-year-old exile where Judaism became limited to the bedroom and the bathroom and the kitchen and the Bible was put in the Gniza. And even though we left the exile, the exile hasn't left us as far as learning Torah is concerned and 
we're still ignorant in Tanakh. And so I've been giving these shiurim, and that's why it's really important to help me promote the shiur. And we have some people now who understand how marketing on the internet works, and we've been growing a little bit, but it all costs money. So if you've been enjoying the shiurim and you'd like to help me out, you can find me on a brand new website we set up. It's called LennyGoldberg.com. That's my name, LennyGoldberg.com, easy to remember. And you'll see a lot of nice stuff there, these Bible podcasts, uh, another podcast I give on the radio. And there's also a link to donate a couple of bucks to help me out with this thing. You can also email me if you have any questions at LennyGoldberg40 at gmail.com, LennyGoldberg40 at gmail.com for questions or comments. So if you think it's important that more people hear what I'm saying, go to LennyGoldberg.com. And if you can't contribute any funds to help us spread the word, please try to at least share these classes if you can. That's it for today. Next week, we'll be back. Chapter 8.